Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. There's more than meets the eye, especially when it comes to deep underground cave networks. There's places on Earth that we haven't really explored, let that be deep underground cave networks or the mysteries reached to the ocean where water is still over a thousand years old. And that's what we're going to look into this week. Strange mysteries from deep, hidden parts of our oceans and caves. The depths of the oceans are fascinating and mysterious, and they're some of the most unexplored areas of Earth. We know more about some places in our solar system than we do about the deepest parts of our oceans. And that is also true for underwater cave systems, which are plentiful, but also very difficult to navigate and dangerous. In the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico, there's a cave near Puerto Morales called El Zabote. And this is about a 20 meter cave and it has a sinkhole in it. That's how it was formed. And it has roughly an hourglass shape. But inside this El Zapote cave system, there's some very, very fascinating and unusual stalactites. And divers, being divers, who love the names of mysterious and unworldly things for their, for their descriptions, have called this place the Hell's Bells. And that's because the stalactites found in this cave resemble giant conical and hollow in the interior bells that is quite fascinating and unique and the chemistry that makes that work has recently been studied by a german mexican research team led by professor dr wolfgang steinsbeck from the institute of earth sciences at heidelberg university in germany they've recently published their findings in the paleography paleoclimatology and paleoecology journal so let's take a step back and talk a little bit about cave formations. Now you probably remember stalactites and stalagmites. Now stalactites are the things that hang from the ceiling and drip down, and stalagmites are the thing underneath that grow up. And there's you know, a lot of different kinds of what we call speleothems, basically things in, that grow inside caves. It's quite interesting to think about what can make one of these speleothems, or a stalactite in particular, because it doesn't require any special unique piece of chemistry. In fact, any material which is soluble and that can be deposited as a colloid or is in a suspension and mix inside a material, or is even that something that's capable of being melted can form a stalactite. And that, that's lava, minerals, mud, peat, pitch, sand, sinter, even amberite, which is crystallized urine of some animals. They can all form stalactites. Concrete stalactites are even possible, basically where you get runoff from uh, slowly degrading concrete traveling down, and the process for all these materials is basically the same. The material is dissolved in some form, and then it runs and starts to drip, uh, and as it drips, it dries, it leaves behind the, the solid that was in suspension in the liquid, and the rest of the liquid drops down. And basically, this continues for a very, very long period of time. And what you end up with is these big, long, spindly things that can be anywhere from a couple of millimetres to metres long, depending on how long they've been dripping and growing. And this, that's how you form a stalactite. And underneath it, you form the stalagmite, which is then the drippings are growing up to touch the thing coming down from above. There's a whole bunch of different types of these, um, even ones made out of lava, ones of different shapes, very thin, ones made of ice, which you probably are very familiar with, long icicles, but it can be done with what they call calthamite, which is basically runoff from concrete, uh, where there's been a slow leak happening on the concrete, and over time, calcium, magnesium, or other ions 
can interact with the concrete, degrade it, and start to form runoff, that eventually becomes a stalactite as well. Let's say under a bridge or in a large uh, structure. And stalactites and other speleothemes, things found inside caves, are incredibly fascinating because they take many, many years to develop and often require intricate chemistry to form. The stalactites in the Hell's Bells caves are incredible at the moment because they're underwater, but they would have formed when that cave was on dry land before the water level had arisen and this had filled up with water from above. And what's interesting is that these cone-shaped hollowed-out interiors or horseshoe-shaped sections are very, very unique, not only in their shape and size, but how they're grown. Because where they're growing is a lightless environment near the base of a 30-meter freshwater cave. And immediately above where this is, there's a zone of oxygen-depleted but sulfide-rich and toxic salt water. So you have to dive through this crazy, intense, sulfur-rich, toxic area to get down to the normal fresh water, which is a bit strange. And what's actually helping these things grow is a very, very intricate form of bacterial reaction as well that's occurring on the surface. The researchers suspect the growth of the hollow structures are tied to the specific physical and biochemical conditions near the haliocline, which is the layer that separates the fresh water from the underlying salt water. And the microbes that are involved in that nitrogen cycle, which are still there and chugging away, and basically help bring the calcium up and precipitate out because they help increase the water's pH. So this interaction between the microbes that are feeding and forming as part of the cycle of this toxic salt water and this fresh water interacting with each other has actually led to these bells growing in a very unusual shape as the bacteria basically helps it corrode and erode in certain spots. And this explains how it has such a unique structure and look. And it just goes to show that sometimes in these depths of these caves, not even in the depths of an ocean trench, but inside a cave system, you can find some very, very complicated chemistry and biology linked together to make what is a very interesting and fascinating site for divers in the Yucatan Peninsula. But the Yucatan Peninsula is not just home to one fancy cave with unusual stalactites inside it. It's actually home to some of the most complex and interesting cave systems. Basically, because a lot of the Yucatan is an estuary, a low-lying swampland type area, there's also underneath that an even larger estuary of cave systems. And basically, these are connected. The cave system estuary is not just a saltwater estuary like you find above ground, but the saltwater from the oceans come in. And as well, inside, the rainwater comes through sinkholes and other openings in caves, and they mix together. And you end up with these separated but unusual areas of saltwater in one layer and seawater in another layer. And because there's so much more cave system then there is coastline. The actual estuary is now giant, much larger than it was previously if you just consider what's on the surface. It's actually bigger than some areas of the United States estuaries, like near Galveston. And researchers from Texas A&M University in Galveston, along with the US Geological Survey and other collaborators from Mexico, the Netherlands, Switzerland and US institutions, have conducted an extensive analysis of 
the cave system around the Oxbellha cave network in northeastern Yucatan. And it's, it's one of the most detailed studies of a subterranean ecosystem that's been performed. And this required not only cave diving, but a deep understanding of ecology, of underwater and marshland areas, as well as geology to understand how these caves are formed. And it meant a really, really wide team with a remarkable breadth of experience. And what they found inside these caves is a really strange and very, very unusual ecosystem that had thrived in these cave areas. Now, in Mayan lore, they describe a fantastical underworld with all kinds of creatures and where the gods lived. But in the Yucatan Peninsula, what actually is happening in in these subterranean cave networks is a methane and bacteria cycle that's otherwise only ever found deep in ocean trenches or at the very bottoms of incredibly deep lakes. And that is what's happening in these very, very shallow, you know, maybe a couple of tens of meters below ground large cave networks. It's really, really complicated chemistry with strange and unusual bacteria thriving in their own specific niche. Now, the freshwater portion of these caves, like the Hell's Bells and the El Zapote cave network, are basically formed through caves and sinkholes, which bring in fresh water. Not only are they important through the local communities as a source of fresh water, but what they actually bring is they bring rainwater downwards. And now methane in the cave forms because, well, basically, the jungle floor, anything that sort of decomposing and rotting, produces a methane. And that migrates downwards deep into the water into the caves. Pretty much all the methane formed in the soil normally migrates upwards towards the atmosphere. But because these caves and sinkholes funnel all the water in and the water all goes down and gets trapped in this cave network, it actually concentrates the methane in a way that's not normally seen. That means there's a methane-rich environment, which is perfect for bacteria and other microbes that love methane. They live and eat this. Both in, they dr- live in the water and eat the methane and other dissolved organic material that's brought in from the access from the freshwater runoff from the rain. And these microbes then form a food web that includes crustaceans and other cave-adapted shrimp species. And all of those actually also get basically 21 of their nutrition from methane. So these crustaceans are feeding mostly off methane and and methane-fed bacteria, which means that we now have basically a methane life cycle rather than uh, one based on carbon, which is incredibly interesting. Now, this happens in areas of the ocean often where there's an oxygen minimum, basically where because of the complex geochemical reactions or because it's a deoxygenated environment there's not much oxygen in the water so you end up with really strange species living there and things that don't rely on oxygen as part of their biocycle and it's unusual because we're actually finding a cave network where this is just happening naturally and deoxygenation of oceans is something that we're also worried about from a pollution standpoint so this gives us a really good way to study without having to go to the bottom of a trench a deep kilometers beneath the surface of the ocean and the very interesting finding of this study was how important dissolved organic material like methane was to the ca- cave's food web. Basically, most people assume that just runoff from plants or other, or other organic material on the surface formed the food that would be eaten and consumed by things living inside the caves. But it's actually really critically the methane part of that, not just the organic matter itself. And that's pretty interesting from a chemical perspective. Because deep inside the caves, 
yes, surface debris, something like a tree or some leaves or so on, might come down into the cave network, but it doesn't get very far into the network. It sort of stays around the sinkhole and doesn't make it much into the kilometers deep cave network around it. But the methane does. It travels as dissolved through the water. And this is an incredibly unusual but fascinating piece of geology and chemistry working together. So this is an example of how creatures can survive in strange environments. And in environments that are literally beneath our feet that we have not really studied in detail until now. This is some great research being done out of the Yucatan Peninsula, led by a team from Texas A&M University and a variety of researchers from across the world. Now we're all familiar with the water cycle, and that's when water rains down from the skies, flows through rivers and creeks and tributaries, to large lakes or the ocean. Then, through heat from the sun, that evaporates up as moisture in the air, that condenses to form clouds and rain, and that repeats the cycle over and over again. Now, of course, it's a little bit more complicated. Sometimes that water can go through large estuaries or cave systems like we spoke about earlier. But also in the ocean, there's strange things going on. We have large ocean currents where changes from thermal vents underneath the ocean floor or heat from underwater volcanoes causes turbulent movements of water. These can cause rising columns or by due to interactions from heating or movements towards the Antarctic or from wind, you get weird surface level currents or the jet stream currents or the currents and storms that powered the roaring 40s at the tops and bottoms of the earth that navigators in the early days used to sail. Deep in the North Pacific lies a section of the ocean that isn't getting turned over, isn't getting swept up in the currents, isn't participating in this very, very old water cycle that's been around since the dawn of time here on Earth. Now, there's a corner of the North Pacific that's around two kilometres below the surface of the sea, that hasn't turned over or changed basically and contributed as part of the water cycle for over a thousand years. The last time some of this water saw land, the Roman Empire still roamed the earth. Now, by using carbon-14 dating, we know where most of the old water lives. And we can do this basically by tracking the different radiocarbon isotopes. And carbon-14 is one of those isotopes. And researchers from the University of Stockholm together with some other partners from the University of New South Wales, have been tracking this to see how and where this water's ended up. In the area of the North Pacific, just around two kilometres below the surface, there's what they call a shadow zone. And in this shadow zone, there's no vertical movements. On the top, you have the coastal wind-driven currents, and underneath, right at the ocean floor, you have the thermal-driven currents, the geothermal-driven currents from underwater topology or even underwater volcanic vents. But in the middle, not much is happening. They're not getting swept up, and there's no vertical turnover movement in the ocean column. And what you end up with is an area of stagnant water. And because that water is stagnant, it's not travelling around in the jet stream currents deep below or roaring along in the waves at the top. It's just not going anywhere. And that means it's not participating in the water cycle, not travelling across the world in the rivers and the creeks and the cave networks and the estuaries and raining down in clouds. It's just staying where it has been for a very, very long period of time. And this is some fascinating because it, this is these shadow zones are trapping millennial old ocean water. And that also means that all the nutrients and carbon from that time are trapped as well 
in that ocean zone. And that could have the capacity to modify climate over centennial timescales. This is some really interesting research that's been done by Dr. Fabian Roquette and Dr. Casimir de Laverne, who collaborated from University of South Wales and University of Stockholm. And it just goes to show that our oceans are very, very complicated, and so is a whole water cycle. But sometimes you can just miss out if you're not hooked in to the right currents. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. This week we talked about the mysterious nature of the water cycle and how they can lead to fantastic cave estuaries and pockets of the ocean trapped in time. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia. <laughs>